On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hey out there, rock and rollers. Welcome to episode number 113 of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast, brought to you by me, your host, Mac B. the Wolf. And I will be joined very shortly by my partner in crime and co-host, as always, from the East Coast of the U.S., Gary Action Jackson. And though we were sorry to have to make it, we hope that you took the time to listen to our Jeff Beck tribute last week. Kind of sad that we have to do these tributes to legends that we are losing. And God, as we uh, recorded this, we just lost another, David Crosby, here not that long ago. And while it may not be shocking that he passed away in his 80s, actually kind of shocking that he lived as long as he did, it's still sad. And it's good time to remember all the great stuff that he did, both in The Birds and with Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. And I'm just glad that I did have the opportunity to see him play with Crosby, Stills, and Nash a few years back. Maybe not at their prime, but they could still sing. They still belted out those classic tunes, and he had a beautiful voice. He maybe didn't make all the right decisions in life, but he was still a real talent. It's always a sad thing when we lose a talent like him. So happy trails, Cross. I hope that you are at peace. Uh, but we appreciate you listening to our Jeff Beck piece, and Hopefully you heard the bit from Deborah Bonham and Peter Bullock on their time touring with him on the Stars Align Tour and the, the great anecdote from Peter about playing through Jeff's rig one day and maybe messing with the minds of the crowd waiting outside. But we got some good feedback and then obviously a lot of people have offered their condolences to Jeff's family and his friends and fans of which they are legion around the world. This week... We want to do an artist spotlight on someone who you might not know that well, though I bet you are familiar with a few of his songs. Okay, 1978, January 19th, Jerry Rafferty released the album City to City. Now, many of you might not know Jerry Rafferty, but I bet you know the hit single off of it, and that's Baker Street, which features that kind of sexy saxophone at the beginning and really kind of throughout it. But the signature riff, if you will, is a sax riff, not a guitar riff, not a piano riff, but a sax riff that Jerry did, in fact, write. Big hit, been used in a lot of movies and TV shows over the years. And Jerry had before been in a band called Steeler's Wheel, which had the big hit stuck in the middle with you. And everybody knows that one, especially if you are a fan of Quentin Tarantino's. You saw it in his first film, Reservoir Dogs, in a pivotal scene, which we'll talk a little bit more about here on the show. It's kind of easy listening, kind of that AM gold that we grew up with in the 70s. But there's great tunes on there. He had a great voice. And it was the highlight of his career. It was a big seller, multi-platinum, around the world, big hits on it. After that, he continued to make records, but nothing achieved the success of City to City. And as it's having its 45th anniversary, because it's something that Jackson and I 
kind of grew to love a little bit in college when we lived together. We thought we'd share some of those memories with you and go through this album track by track. But before we get to that, we have a little bit of business to take care of. Of course, we are members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, a network of about 100 different music shows with something for everybody. It's not just rock, but there's stuff out there for everyone. And we like to give shout outs to the folks who we've had on or, or we've been on their shows in the past, like the CEO, Christian Swain of Rock and Roll Archaeology, like Martin Popoff, History and Five Songs, like our sister, Christy Alexander Hallberg, Rock is Lit, like our dear friend, Paul Stevenson of This Day Rocks and Vintage Rock Pod. Like Jay at The Hook Rocks and like the Kiss Kings themselves, Tom and Zeus of the Shout It Out Loud cast. They're all off to good starts in this 2023 and I encourage you to check all of them out. But what you really need to do is go check out our sponsor, RareVinyl.com. I know a lot of you are record collectors out there. RareVinyl.com has over a quarter of a million pieces in their inventory. And it's not just CDs and LPs. They've got singles. They've got DVDs. They've got posters. They've got tour programs, sometimes with the ticket stuff. If you're looking for something special for your collection, go to RareVinyl.com and use code PODCAST. Use that code and you can save 10% off not only your first order, but every order you make with them. So for you collectors who like to buy things on occasion or you're always looking for a few things, check them out. Over a quarter million things in their inventory. They ship all around the world and they take great care of their stuff. I've been to their warehouse. I have met their team. The way they procure this stuff, the way they catalog it, the way they rate it, and the way they ship it to you is all top-notch. You will not go wrong. Go to rarevinyl.com. Use code PODCAST. Save yourself 10%. Now back to Jerry Rafferty. Yes, as people who love hard rock and heavy metal, maybe we have to take a little guff for liking somebody like Jerry Rafferty or pointing out his great songs. But we're not the only people who liked him. You know, the Foo Fighters liked him. Dave and Taylor Hawkins really liked Jerry Rafferty. At least they liked these couple songs. They did cover Baker Street. And at one of the tribute concerts for Taylor Hawkins, I believe Mark Ronson came out and led a group to do right down the line. It's the second big single, Off City to City. So you can be a hard rocker. You can be a true rock and roller and still appreciate the greatness and the songwriting mastership and the sweet, delicate voice of Jerry Rafferty. So that's what we're going to do here on show 113, guys. We're going to talk about Jerry Rafferty's 1978 classic, City to City, right here on The Wolf. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 
Pantheon 50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon 50 and use the code Pantheon 50 to get 50% off. Yeah, man, you're dedicated. You are a dedicated co-host to the show, and you deserve all the credit in the world. For Lee, at 5.15, you leave the house at 5.15 in a suit with your hair looking good. I, I am impressed. I got 10 pounds of uh, product in there. It's ready to go. That's nice. DOT compliant. Very well done. Very nice. So as much as we revere Jerry Rafferty and his songs off this album, it, it's kind of shocking to me that... I mean, if you told me in college that one day you two are going to have a radio show, because that's the only way we would understand what a podcast was, right? You know, right. It's, it's a radio show that goes out on the computer. Oh, okay, yeah, whatever. <laughs> You're going to do over a hundred of them, and none of them are going to be on Jerry Rafferty. I'd be like, bullshit, man. It's going to be one of the first <laughs> ten, you know? <laughs> but, you know, we've just had a lot to do here, and as... City to City, which is his biggest record, and certainly the one that we're most familiar with, is turning 45. This week, we, we would have put it out for its 45th birthday, but Jeff Beck passed away, and we just figured, well, let's 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 do a tribute to the legendary Jeff Beck, and then City to City will be there. But, I mean, other than us digging Baker Street and right down the line, mm-hmm. when we would have those easy listening times in college, like it wasn't all ACDC and the Colts and Metallica and the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin. Sometimes you have to, you have to turn the volume dial down a little bit, right? Um, the man mm-hmm. cannot live on heavy metal and hard rock alone. And so he filled this nice void. But other than that, I mean, how did you first come to know Jerry and, and particularly those, those two songs? So like you were saying, when we were in college, um, it, it, we, it was a steady diet of hard right. rock. And I, I remember, I think, I think we found him before I, I'm 99% sure we found him before Reservoir Dogs, like before yeah, absolutely. Steelers Wheels or before we figured out what yeah. that was. If I remember the story correctly, there was a, in Orlando, where we were in college, there were like two rock stations one of them played stuff from the 70s 80s and then one of them played the new stuff but it was all the the catalog wasn't very right. big but at night there was a station out of tampa that played a little bit funky ah, mix mm-hmm. of stuff and right down the line was on there so like we'd sit there and be like okay go back to that tampa station and see if we can right, hear right. that and it was just it was this that song in particular it was just funky enough to listen to and enjoy mm-hmm. but it was definitely on the i guess they hadn't coined the term yet but yacht rock side of things yeah. i think we we were yacht rocking before it was in vogue yeah it, it, i would call it adult contemporary or, okay. or, or easy listening certainly easy listening and and we would of course make fun of before we knew what yacht rock was we would make fun of it you know <laughs> of course we would because that's just what you do when you like hard heavy rock and this you know Christopher Cross comes right. on, you're like, oh my God. Well, I was just going to say, I like <laughs> you know, it. Yeah. Now, I can't say that I really knew that it was, I mean, I somehow in college, we figured out that it was Jerry Rafferty, like they played Baker Street or they played right down the line and said, and that's mm-hmm. Jerry Rafferty off his City to City album. I'm like, oh, okay, that's Jerry Rafferty. Now we know to look out for him. I have to say that before that, growing up, I may not have known who Jerry Rafferty was, but I know those two songs because my mother was an adult contemporary fan okay and so my dad was the rock and roller my my mom Mm. liked a little country not super country but she liked like ann murray and she liked you know juice newton and she liked the eagles you know and 
and and and I wouldn't I didn't like country I knew from a very young age that I did not like country you know it's like so <laughs> I may not have had any power in the car over the stereo system with her but I'm like eh, I don't want to listen to country mom so most of the time she would listen to this I think it was wacky w-a-k-y that had a little mix of oldies maybe and then some of this easy listening adult contemporary okay. in louisville kentucky so i end up and you know you would hear neil diamond on there you know like coming to america mm-hmm. and some of those songs were on the love on the rocks you know that was that was a big <laughs> one in the car and i just remember hearing these songs a lot and and obviously anytime you have one enormous hit you are going to get a second song you're going to get another single Right, it's just going to happen. Right. Record company wants it. The radio stations want it. The fans are like, I, "This is one huge song. There's got to be another one." So Baker Street, huge, huge international hit. But you got to have a follow up, and that's right down the line, which is the next song off the record. Mm-hmm. And I just remember the two of them being, I, you know, I wouldn't put one above the other as a kid. I'm like those those two were kind of the same. As we kind of move along into maturity and get to know these songs better, Baker Street's the enormous hit because of the sax solo and the guitar right. solo, really, and the greatness of the song. But as a young kid, I didn't really discern between the two. I'm like, those are two great songs, and they belong together. Did you okay? Did you know that it was the same person or the same artist? I could. I didn't know it, but I could tell kind of thing you know okay. yeah it's kind of like when i first heard you're so vain by carly simon and i can hear who i think mick jagger is mick jagger on the back of vocals I'm like god i know that's mick jagger i believed it was okay. him then i go find out i'm right you know kind of thing i, I think that's mm-hmm. that's kind of but no i didn't know his name until we got to college interesting yeah i mean i know those those were the two big ones and i i didn't grow up with that but then going back and and hearing the adult contemporary yeah those are the two big ones and then of course you know uh, stuck in the middle with you came back around again because of reservoir dogs right and you can't you can't overestimate reservoir dogs value to that song in mm-hmm. pop culture or in popular in the, the zeitgeist of people like had i heard that song before that movie yeah Absolutely. Did I know who they were? Not at all. And the thing that not only helped it was, not only was it such an iconic and horrifying scene with Michael Madsen torturing the cop because he's he's singing to him and he's dancing around before he's going to cut his ear off, right? But it's K-Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s week at which they talk about as characters in the movie, and it's right. Stephen Wright. And, and he even announces that, you know, the song is like this, you know, Jerry Rafferty and Joe Egan had pop duo Steelers wheel with, you know, with the song. He's like, oh, I love this song. And then he goes around and thankfully they pan away when he's actually hacking, but we know what's going on. You ever listen to K-Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s? It's my personal favorite. Joe Egan and Jerry Rafferty were a duo known as Steeler's Wheel when they recorded this Dylan-esque pop bubblegum favorite from April of 1974. That reached up to number five as K-Billy Super Sounds of the 70s continues. Don't 
and and the great part about that scene, not to get too off track, but it does not go together. Like the the song is just this mellow kind of, and he's just you know it just doing the like you said, he's got the razor out, he's kind of dancing around, like you know what's going to happen. You know yeah. gonna, yes, he's going to do something very very bad to this person, and and it it doesn't work, but it totally works in the movie. Yeah, I know. And the thing is, is like people say, well, you must have you must have seen Reservoir Dogs. You know, and and heard that, and then known it was Jerry Rafferty. I'm like, honest to God, I think I saw Pulp Fiction first. I think Pulp so Fiction. Too. Yeah, because I know it was I, 1994. I know I didn't. I see think. It. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I know yeah. I didn't see Reservoir Dogs in the theater. That's for sure. I think right. I'd heard people tell me, you know, there's this movie Reservoir Dogs. It's pretty darn good. I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. You know, I'm not going to go read it. But but Pulp Fiction was huge for us in college, and we had to see it several right. times in the theater, including at the Draft House, which is a great place to see a theater. I made it to see a picture especially like that. And then eventually it's like, well, you know, there was this other one that came before at Reservoir. I was like, oh man, this might, in some ways, this is even better. You know, I mean, pretty darn good movie making and tough guys, gangsters, good use of music, mm-hmm. good use of putting time backwards and forwards and stuff like, yeah, that's really good. And when they said Joe, uh, Joe Egan and Jerry Rafferty, like, oh yeah, that's Jerry Rafferty who eventually went on to be a solo artist who did that those songs that we love so much. So that's that's mm. kind of where it all rests as far as I'm concerned, as far as the, the ebb and flow of, of Jerry Rafferty coming in and out of our lives. Yeah, interesting, because well, I was going to say, it, it, this this is another one that doesn't really make sense. But <laughs> if you listen to the rest of the show, we should not like this, but it's 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 a great, it's just a great record. And all of the songs are, they're a little bit different. And the, the one thing that I was thinking of is I don't think we've done a review yet on an album where it's just one person, right? I don't think. Like everyone else, it's like, you know, words and music by a couple different people mm-hmm. or the whole band. He wrote this all himself. So it's interesting to see how, you know, he puts all these songs together on his own and then he gets musicians in to, to record them. But one mind thinking of these. Well, yeah, no, that's a good point. And we'll bring that up later because there was a lot of controversy or controversy, as they say in the UK, Ooh. around Baker Street. It's like, where did the melody from the sax really come from? And there was a mm. little bit of back and forth on that over the years. And, and I think it's finally been resolved. It's Jerry who wrote every bit of it and he deserves all the credit but I, I do want to kind of go through a little bit of his career leading up to this point because it's interesting and it, it's a little different uh, than most of the bands and the rockers that we end up following but you, you say right on paper we wouldn't do this well on paper would Dave Grohl be a fan of this because on paper you know he hangs out with Lemmy and has been in a hard mm-hmm. rock bands or whatever but he liked this song. They covered this song. The Foo Fighters did an amazing version of Baker Street, you know? So, yeah. it, it, look, it's one of those things that transit. It transcends. Yeah, yes. he, he's a little older than us, but he was probably like a senior when we were in the eighth grade or something like that. He's not like a generation older than us. He's he's just like a right. little. So he, he's like older. Yeah, he's like older brother. Exactly. You know, so like I bet his mother heard it, listened to it on the radio when she was driving him around when he was growing up. And that's exactly where he heard it, you know. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's the story of an Irish immigrant family who made it to Scotland so they could find work. And his dad was a laborer who worked very hard and he was the youngest of three boys. And, you know, in typical Irish family didn't have a lot of money. It was kind of certainly pre-TV for people of that social class, and, and maybe you didn't even have a radio. So Irish families, what they do is they get together and they sing. They don't turn on the radio. They don't click on the TV. You sing in the house. And I think that was kind of part of 
his life growing up was singing with his family. His mother was a pretty good singer and singing with his brothers, kind of figuring out what harmony was. Like, but the bit you're singing is a little bit different from mine to his, to his older brother. He goes, yeah, it's called singing in harmony. And then within time, like Jerry kind of figured that out. And so kind of, you know, uh, to call them working class would, would almost be generous. I think they were kind of lower class, you know, living in, in housing, government housing or whatever, and or council estates, they, they call them. And then his dad died when he was only 16 from hard life and from alcoholism. And Jerry's like, look, you know, it was always music for me. I, I was, you know, I may have had different jobs growing up, but it was never like, I'm going to make a life out of this. It was always, I'm going to make a life out of music. Yeah. And I think that that's, I think that's for, that goes along with a lot of people that are musicians that, you know, you grow up around it. It's not like it's all, it's kind of in your soul. Mm-hmm. Like it gets into, into everything that you do. And, and I think that that's probably what helps you write songs also, you know, cause it, you kind of, you kind of think the experiences you have in your life, it just translates to music easier when it's always around you. And that, and that's what a, a lot of these songs sound like to me. Like he's taking pieces of his life and putting music to them yeah. or at least concepts. They're very personal songs. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. a lot of times when you hear a song, it sounds like he's singing it to a woman or he's singing it to someone, you know, it's about them and I'm telling you what your right. life is about. But to me, if you if you really think about it, I, I think these are all him singing about himself and maybe even to himself, like he's trying to explain himself to himself almost. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah, just kind of giving the giving the play-by-play of his life and where he was at that point in time. So he, he's, he's grown up in Scotland. He gets down to London, you know, with his buddy Joe Egan, who would, of course, be in Steeler's Wheel one day. And, you know, they're playing on the... On the weekends, they get into a group called Mavericks with an X. And they're doing, you know, cover songs and stuff like that. They're busking in the London underground, you know, trying to earn money. They do a couple of singles, but they don't really go anywhere, you know. So nothing really happens with the Mavericks. Nothing happens with Joe Egan. So he happens upon uh, Billy Connolly, and I, who is a legend. He is a comedian and an actor, but he's kind of a Scottish national hero, Billy Connolly. Yeah. And for a few years he and he's in this band called the humble bums with billy and for a while there's this guy a guitarist tam harvey but he wasn't i guess eventually he kind of split uh after they got uh you know uh, uh, maybe after the first album or maybe even before the first album but you know they're playing it's it's a little bluegrass because i think that's what billy's good at is a little bit of uh banjo and maybe strumming a little mm. bit of a guitar but you know they made a few uh, a few records and, and they had some cool covers by a, a Scottish artist called John Patrick Byrne, John Byrne. And, you know, they had a couple of songs that, that got on to the, the radio around here. But it was, I guess it was kind of apparent that, that Rafferty was the real singing, songwriting, musician talent mm. of the band. Even Billy said that. He's like, look, I know songs and, and I still do, but I'm not a musician and I won't be, but but Jerry was, you know, and mm-hmm. my hope was kind of like he would make me better, and he did. But then he also got better, so I never bridged <laughs> the gap, you know. It's like he, he's still just always, you know, these few steps better than me. And, and he said in this documentary that I was watching right before we got on here that he's like, you know, he is on every one of my songs in the Humble Bums, 
but I'm not on any of his songs <laughs> because he was a perfectionist and that's what perfectionists do. They perfect things. So he would get his songs yeah. down. And then when I would go into do mines, he would split and take off, maybe go to the pub, but then he could come back later and fix stuff or change stuff on <laughs> my stuff. But the thing is, Billy, he's such a sweet guy. At least he's always seemed that way to me. He's like, did he do the right thing? Yeah, I think that he probably did. Now, you won't hear a musician say that ever. You know, you never say, Tony Ohm, say, I'm glad that Ronnie James Dio went in after me and Geezer left and changed some things on the live. You will never hear that. You know, you will never hear anybody say that. So, I mean, it just shows that, that Billy is a humble man, that he has love and respect for Jerry, and he knows his limitations. He was like, I like singing and songwriting, but it's not my profession. It's not my greatest gift. I'm not what Jerry was. Basically, yeah, and and that's that's got to be. I mean, I, I I know Billy Connolly from his more from his uh, comedy, right. and, you know, speaking tours. But I can imagine somebody who has a passion for doing this, and you think, okay, you know, I can I can write songs, and then you meet somebody like Jerry and just say, not like this, like th- this person, they have it. Like I'm I'm kind of a casual. Mm-hmm part of this but this is somebody who really can knock it out of the park and and yeah kudos to him for realizing that and realizing that what he was going to do to the music was going to make it better and not mess it up exactly you know and he was getting a lot of compliments from a lot of people that his songwriting is somewhat mccartney-esque uh, mm-hmm. you know he's got that going for him so when it came to like i guess they had one more they had one more album due to transatlantic records uh the humble bumps did basically said you know it's okay if you just want to do a solo album to fulfill that contract. So his first solo album, which is 1971's Can I Have My Money Back, was that uh, was that album, you know? And a lot of people said, you know, it, it's pretty good. You know, you can definitely see where he's going and he, he's somebody on the way up, you know, on the rise there. I don't think it did a whole lot of damage, but you can see that they made videos for it back in the day, or at least a video for the title track. And it's interesting mm-hmm. to see a fresh-faced Jerry, who was still very young at that time. I mean, you know, early <laughs> 20s singing now he doesn't look like a rock star really and then even once baker street comes out you know in the in 78 at the height of disco yeah. where you either look like a punk and you looked horrible like street trash or you looked like a disco diva like someone in abba or you know someone like that someone amazing he looked like a guy who you know sat at a desk all day i mean that was just the way yeah. he looked you know so uh, it, it may not have run up the charts but he then got the opportunity to go back to his old buddy joe egan and create this duo called steeler's wheel and i guess i didn't know this they recorded three albums with american songwriters and producers lieber and stoller so that's interesting to me because it's like where did they find them right mm-hmm. and and how did they get the idea to do that but you know obviously in, in their debut album 1972 they put together stuck in the middle with you now it it didn't come out as a single till 1973 but it, it ran up the charts it was a number eight in the uk number six in the billboard top 100 so that's a bona fide hit and i know they've got kind of a freaky video for that too with their this random you know what he's saying you know clowns to the left i mean there's all 
stuff coming in and and uh in, i think it's in a big room or something so i don't know what that was for because it was before mtv so i don't know if they had like television shows that they would show it right on, would they play it in a club or i have no idea what it was for but it was it was some kind of promotional deal yeah did they have the old gray whistle test back then in the, in yeah, the uk yeah i don't you know, know. Did they have top of the pops I, yeah, I don't know all the shows and when they started and all that kind of stuff but it, it, it's interesting you know and it sold over a million copies you know world wide uh so that's that's pretty good i mean that's success mm-hmm. you know but i guess uh, in dealing with these labor and stoller and, and getting into this this record and they made three records through the 70s from like 72 to 75 but then it's like they were owned by them it, it's like they they couldn't they were stuck they were contractually obligated to them and so you know from 1975 to 1978 jerry was unable to do anything new. He couldn't go out and be Jerry Rafferty. I guess they didn't want to do Steeler's Wheel anymore. But no, Steeler's Wheel was 72. Fergus Lee Park was 73. Right or Wrong was 75. Neither of the second or third albums had a huge hit on it, like stuck in the middle. And so I think, you know, they wanted to to move on, but they just couldn't, which is sad. And it's just, you know, so telling of the music industry. It's such nonsense. Yeah. And, and it's unfortunate that you've got a situation where he, I mean, he probably had things that he wanted to work on, but you know, you're just, you're just kind of stonewall because if you do, you're going to get either sued or somebody else is going to own them. Yeah. You know, and, but it also leads to, if you are this good of a musician, everybody tell you know, is, says you're this talented of a songwriter, you can make these great tunes. If you've got three years of backup, when usually you've got to make a record every 12 to 15 or 18 months, then you've got three years of nothing. Then you're going to have a backlog. You're going to have some good stuff. One would think uh, there, you know, and nothing's more telling mm-hmm. than George Harrison's first solo album, All Things Must Pass. <laughs> he keeps writing these songs and they're like, okay, that's good, but it's not it's not as good as what John and, and Paul wrote. So you can, you know, just hold on to that one. And he did, and he held on and he held on. And then they say, okay, the Beatles are broken up. Here's a triple album of stuff that I've written, including My Sweet Lord and What Is Life and all sorts of great stuff on there. So we come to, to late 77, early 78, and Jerry's making city to city. He's making it to London, but he's also commuting back to Scotland, you know, where he has a home, he has a wife, he has a daughter. And so I think that's where a lot of the, the big track and, and the title track, where the stories come from, is that he's kind of mm-hmm. got this life. He's not touring, but he's got a life of, of jumping on trains and, and crashing in people's houses while he's trying to create something special that sold, what, five and a half million copies or something like that worldwide? Yeah. And I, I think that was part of his, part of his pro- not problem, but part of his issue, too, was that he, he wanted to have this life with his family but then also make music. And those two things are very hard to do. There are two worlds that are hard to get along with. You can't really have both. And he was trying to trying to bridge that gap. And you can, if you go through these, you can tell, you know, he's excited to be making music, but also, you know, heartbroken that he has to make that choice to be away from them. Yeah. It's, it's easy to think that it's a glamorous life to be on the road, but what it is, it's a really hard life. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, it's one thing to see the Rolling Stones on private jets and five-star hotels. Most people are not the Rolling Stones. Okay. <laughs> and if you're a singer songwriter that looks like Jerry Rafferty and is probably playing clubs and theaters, um, mm-hmm. with a backing band you're, you're on buses you're on lorries you know you're on trains and stuff like that and you know once you get a hit 
everybody wants a piece of you. And, right. and he never wanted to be famous necessarily. He certainly mm-hmm. didn't want to be on like Tiger Beat magazine or anything like that. He wanted to be known as a songwriter and he won awards and things like that for it. But I, I just don't think he ever really reconciled the fact that what he did required a certain public presence, if not a public persona. And that's just something he never seemed to really be interested in. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 the toll that it takes on you and I would imagine too, if you if you were in Steelers wheels, you know, there is a kind of even though he was doing the bulk of the heavy lifting, there's a 50-50 kind of thing. Now you're it's all it's all you. Nobody wants to talk to anybody else in the band except you. Right. You've got to do all the press. You've got to do all the you take all the accolades, but you also take all the criticism mm-hmm. when people don't like your stuff. Right. So yeah, I think it was I think this was a new phase that he was in but you have to be able to take the whole thing right monetarily it probably worked out fine but then having to do all the interviews and listen to the negative feedback and all that i think henley got sick of that as a solo artist right he's like it's great that i don't have to bargain with glenn or don felder or joe about you know which songs are going on all that kind of stuff but it's like every bad note that's your fault henley every t-shirt that doesn't look right that's your fault Henley so he's like it, mm-hmm. when, when like 1994 came back he's like I kind of like the idea of being in a band again so we can share some of this right because it yes monetarily it's great to be a solo artist but you're kind of you know table for one most of that time yeah and the other thing too is you know for as much as you you're talking about you know fighting with the people in the band mm-hmm. when you're on your own you don't have that person who's your equal to say this is not good do it again or we're, we're leaving this song off or whatever you know and and then you know it, like you said now it's your fault that for whatever reason it didn't work so yeah it's it sounds great on paper mm-hmm. but i think it is it's tough to take all by yourself absolutely i think you're right about that but you know he's a talented guy and he produced the album with hugh murphy and it's got 10 solid tracks on it plus a b-side that, that we can talk about it so i, I figure let's let's go track by track here Hi, I'm Paul Stevenson from Vintage Rock Pod, and you're listening to The Ugly American Werewolf in London. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, uh, oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. 
Okay. And before we do that, a, a bit of research that I had no idea about, absolutely no clue about at all, is that the U.S. version was sped up just a little bit compared to the U.K. version. Okay. Same identical 10 tracks. But if you play the long form UK, it's about 53 minutes long. If you play long form US, it's 51 minutes and 12 seconds or something like that. So just being slightly faster, it's it shaves almost two minutes off the time of the record. Now, hmm. because I'm living in Europe and I don't have all, because I have this on CD and on LP back in America, I bought okay. it on LP in the early 2000s, basically when people were throwing away their records, right? I mean, hmm. I think I got it for a dollar or something like that. Like, a, like first, <laughs> I don't know if it's first run, but is it Jerry Rafferty, City to City? I remember buying it thinking, one day I'm going to reconnect with Jackson. He's going to love this, right? And, you know, just thinking, geez, I can't believe I can get this for a dollar right now. But I don't have it to compare, you know, so so I don't know. And if you go on YouTube, it, it's I think it's the British version. I think it's the original. But but that we'll come up, we'll come back to that later. The first song is the arc. Mm-hmm. Not what you would necessarily expect to kick off a record. You know what I mean? It's it's kind of folksy, kind of bluegrass or country, or, or very kind of Scottish Irish folksy kind of traditional, yeah, traditional yeah. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. There's some fiddle in there. Something I obviously didn't know before doing research. That opening bit features the Australian bush band, the Bushwhackers, who were playing fiddle and concertina and bocherin on there. You can hear some mandolin. Even the guitar mm-hmm. solo is a little muted. It's kind of a pretty song, but it's yeah. it's weird for me as far as this is how you start the album. Well, and especially when you had more upbeat numbers mm-hmm. in there. Yeah, it, it is it is strange. But I think he, I mean, I don't know him personally. I didn't get to talk to him for this show, but I would imagine that he led that off like with that kind of traditional music to kind of set the mood where that's, that's where his head's at. Like he's, even though he's a rock star and a big deal and everything else, he's still a country boy from Scotland mm-hmm. and hearkening back to that maybe. Yeah. And it's a pretty song. It's mm-hmm. kind of long. It's five and a half minutes, but honestly, I mean, most of the, I mean, I think the shortest Song in here is three and a half minutes. Most of them are four and a half to five minutes. So at five and a half minutes, it, it's it's a little long. It, it tells a good story. I mean, you're, you're talking about a ship to carry us away. But uh, and so obviously it's the arc. I'm not going to say I don't like it because I do like it. Mm-hmm. But as many times as I've listened to this record, I always thought this is just an odd way to start. <laughs> the, the thing that struck me is when he goes, if you didn't know anything about this and you just heard it stone cold, mm-hmm. he sounds almost identical to Jackson Brown when the, for the first couple of first couple of you think uh, so frames that he has I I think so yeah he's got that like it's it's the what he's saying and the way he's saying it I could easily have mistaken him for that it, it is kind of a, a strange way to start but yeah it's it's very inspirational mm-hmm. I don't know whether he's talking about his family coming together or what the message is but yeah, it, it, I would have thought this would have probably been farther down on the album. Absolutely. Especially when yeah. you've got a couple of bona fide hits and then a couple of upbeat, I don't know if I call them rocking songs, but more like travel songs, you know, like road trip yeah. type songs. Like, why wouldn't you start with that instead? But uh-huh. we can come back to that. It, it, it's a nice but, song. But again, he, you know, he's not only is he writing everything, but he's also producing. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, did someone say something like that to him? Like, no, no, man, come on. You want to hit him with the, you want to hit him hard right off the bat. Nope. This is what I'm doing. I feel this is the best way. All right. You're in charge. See the dark night has come down on us. The world is living in the 
ship. Well, apparently United Artists, the record company, is like, City to City, the title track, that ought to be the first single. And he's like, no, 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 it's Baker Street song. That's mm-hmm. what you want to put out. That's the best song on the record. Like, no, that's too good for the public. Let's give them the City to City song. Like, what do you mean too good for the public? What does that even mean? It means we shouldn't play it for them? Are you nuts kind of thing? But City to City would make a good opening mm-hmm. track. To be honest with you, because you kind of want to kick it off and get it going. But look, you don't have to wait too long. Five and a half minutes in, now here comes Baker Street. The enormous, enormous worldwide hit. Number three in the UK, four weeks at number one in Canada. Two weeks, I'm sorry, several weeks at number two in the Billboard Hot 100. And two weeks at number one on America's Cashbox Top 100, released in February 1978. Before we get into more stats or the controversy about it, I mean, what does this song mean to you? What does the recollection of hearing this song do for you? I, I could swear that I came to this second after right down the line. And it's just, yeah. I mean, again, if you've never heard this before, it kind of starts off a little slow. You know, it, it's got that, you know, melody to it. Mm-hmm. What I like at the beginning are the, uh, if, if you really listen, there's splash symbols or something. Mm-hmm. Like bang, you know, he's doing them in the back. Bang, bang, bang. That's the other thing about this record. There's a lot going on. Like, if you listen to it, there's a lot of parts. It's very layered. Mm-hmm. And it, it kind of starts off a little slow. And then that sax comes in and just rips it up. And then it, it like, it's like you're... You know, it's like the roller coaster. You know, you're going and then, you know, you hit the you hit the big dip when the sax comes in and then you're you're into the song and rolling. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And yeah. there's a lot of people who play on this album. It's not just like three or four guys. Oh, yeah. There's a ton. There's a ton of people on there. And and they might not be household names to our American fans or even some people in the UK. But I mean, to some of the Scottish people like Barbara Dixon, she's one of the most celebrated songstresses and singers in Scotland, I think she's been given, you know, an OBE or some kind of, you know, honorary award or something like that. And she's singing backup on this. And, you know, eventually Jerry went and played on some of her records, you know. But the sax solo in here really does kind of define it. That melody mm-hmm. is huge. Played by Raphael Ravenscroft, who we talked about not that long ago when we did Robert Plant's Pictures at 11 because he mm-hmm. played on Pledge Pin. And he played on, I think, Pink Floyd's Final Cut. He's played with some other folks that we know. But for years, there were controversy because he claimed that was really something he came up with. Like, Jerry didn't give me a finished song and say, play this. There were gaps in it. And some of that I borrowed from some blues stuff. You know, and I had an alto sax with me, so I I went ahead and played it. Jerry always said, bullshit. That's not true. You know, in fact, I didn't even want it as a sax solo. I was going to do it as a guitar thing. And then what's his name? The producer said, well, why don't we try it as a sax thing? And, and Raphael was around. So they did it that way. Okay. So wait, so what you're saying is that the, the music was already written and instead of being played on a guitar, it was just switched to the sax or, you know, however they do it, transpose it or whatever. So it wasn't like he came up with it. He just played it as instructed. Right. And that's what Jerry okay. said, right? Okay. But there was a little he said, she said for a long time. Well, eventually, you know, it came out. There was a demo that came out that was recorded before the final version was recorded. And it is, I think it's Jerry playing it on the guitar with a little bit of echo okay. and stuff on it. So it's obviously, and in that same documentary with Billy Connolly, he's like, if I had to guess, I would say Jerry wrote every single note on that album. If I know it's the Jerry I know, he wrote all of it. And so hmm. to this day, no one really buys the Raphael version anymore. It's it's definitely a Jerry, <laughs> a Jerry song, you know.
I think it's amazing. I think it's an amazing yeah. song. It's kind of a story song also, you know, about, I, I guess, I, I think he's talking about Baker Street in London mm-hmm. and just, you know, coming down from Scotland and hanging out and, you know, it, it's got kind of a, I mean, like, what's the story here? You know, it's, there's stuff in there about how, you know, everything will be better next year, right. but, you know, till now we just kind of roll along. And so it's, it's kind of happy. And then it's kind of sad at the same time. Yeah, no, he's, he's got a dream about buying some land. He's going to give up the booze and the one night stands because he's got a wife, he's got a kid and he's going from Scotland where he has this happy home life down to London to deal with the lawyers trying to get extricated from the Steelers wheels situation. He's crashing yeah. at a buddy's place on Baker street. So he doesn't have to stay in an expensive hotel or rent a place or whatever. So that's what he's doing, you know? And I remember when I moved mm-hmm. to London and I first stopped at the Baker street tube station, I was taking pictures and sending them to you. Like here we are at Baker street, man, <laughs> right off the bat, Baker yeah. street. Yeah. <laughs> Here's another strange story about Baker Street that obviously I didn't know anything about before we started doing this story. Okay, it went to number two on the Billboard chart, and it sat there for six weeks, and it was blocked by Andy Gibbs shadow dancing. Okay, it was supposed to go to number one. Like it was, it was being played more. I mean, look back in the day, they can just call anything they want. Number one, number two, they didn't have hard sales numbers like they do now. Like it's all digitized and all that thing or number of mm-hmm. airplays and that kind of thing. It, it's just like, uh, we think this one's at number one, you know, this one, no, that one's not number one. That's probably number three or something like that. So I, I understand that. But the fact of the matter is the industry rumor is that it did overtake shadow dancing. Okay, and Casey Kasem was going to put it at the top. However, at a dinner with Gibbs managers, then Billboard chart director Bill Wardlow was told if Shadow Dancing did not remain at number one, then Gibb was going to be pulled from the lineup of the upcoming Billboard concert that they were putting on. So they really? they left it at number one, and they screwed Jerry and stuck him at number two. Interesting. Yeah. That's that's an odd thing, because I mean, back then, the brothers Gibb could do whatever they wanted to. I feel that's odd that they would do that, but maybe because it was Andy and not the rest of them. But, well, yeah, that's kind of a kick in the pants. Yeah, so Wardlow then calls the magazine, okay, change the print, just leave it at the top. And Casey apparently had to re-record his huh. countdown. Now, some of that is disputed, so we, we don't know mm-hmm. for sure. But it's a, it's a keen insight into how the music industry has worked and did work and, and probably still on some levels does work. But you can't take away, I mean, look, how did it do? Australia, number one. Austria, number four. Belgium, number nine. Canada, number one. Ireland, number three. Netherlands, number nine. New Zealand, number four. South Africa, number one. Switzerland, two. UK, three. US, two. Maybe one. Uh, West Germany, three, because it was West Germany back then. So sold a million copies in the United States. Sold over half a million copies in the United Kingdom. More around the world. That's a huge, huge international hit, and it's an iconic song. And if you look on something like IMDb, that song and Stuck in the Middle with You have been used in like over 100 movies and TV shows. They, mm-hmm. they, everyone knows that song. And to this day, it really, really endures. I guess the first time I really saw it in a movie was Goodwill Hunting. At that point, I already knew the song oh, okay. very well. I mean, that that came out yeah. after we were in college. But I got uh, I got a real thrill during the heady days of Napster when I had a couple Foo Fighter albums, but I didn't have all of them. Plus, they had stuff that mm-hmm. had been on soundtracks and stuff, and some B sides. So I'm like, oh, well, I'll jump on Napster and, and see what Foo Fighter stuff. And to my surprise, the Foo Fighters had covered Baker Street with somebody. I don't know if it was Dave or who. Someone's playing instead of the sax solo. It's it's a guitar solo. But the cool 
coolest, funniest part about it is in the middle, he changes the lyrics slightly to, uh, he's going to give up the crack and the one night stands. <laughs> <laughs> and, you got to update it for the time. I know, and I I, I put it on several because I used to make CDs and print the covers and everything for friends at like Christmas time and stuff like that. And I, I put that on several in the early two thousands because I'm like, this is a great song, and I know you guys like the Foo Fighters, so give a listen to this. It, it came out in I guess it was released in 1998, and it was part of their UK single CD single, My Hero. Of course, a CD single okay. would often have about four songs on it, maybe three. So the single a B-side and then maybe something live or maybe another B-side or a lost track, whatever. But yeah, and it was, it was during color of the shape sessions. And I think it eventually made it on a, you know, in a reissue or remaster or whatever. So Dave Grohl, the savior of rock and roll <laughs> loves Jerry Rafferty too, man. So, and what would you rather listen to now? Would you rather listen to Baker street or would you rather listen to shadow dancing? Yeah, that's so easy. My <laughs> God. Andy Gibb, the forgotten Gibb. Well, and the, and it, so if you say that about, and, and I, I haven't listened to Shadow Dancing in a while, so I'm just Shadow kind of Dancing. going by memory. It's just a but disco it, song. That's all it is. That's exactly what I was going <laughs> to say. It, it, that sounds so dated. Yeah. That, yeah, day and night difference. Yeah, yeah. What I didn't know is like on the record, it's, it's over six minutes long. They cut the single version down to just over four minutes. So they trimmed a lot out of the, the single version, mm -hmm. at least the UK single version. I think the American 12-inch or 7-inch single might have been longer than that, but not as long as the, as the album version. Hi, this is Jeff Downs. You're listening to The Ugly American Werewolf. All right, well, that was that, like a half hour on one song. We got to move along. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, like we were saying, once you've got one hit song, you're going to get another one on there, right? Aha had Take On Me huge hit well do they ever have another one yeah that that sun always shines on tv was a minor hit after that right you get one huge one they've got to have a second one and but right down the line like you said to me i, I might have known that one better mm -hmm. uh, i, I might have known it before and to me they kind of go hand in hand and i think it's another great great track by jerry you know and again it did pretty well on the charts yeah and this is one where there's a lot going on right off the bat like your your head almost does two things at the same time because you've got the guitar riff, but then you've also got the bass riff mm -hmm. going and they have nothing to do with each other. They're two totally separate tracks, but they work together, but it, it's, it's very complex. This is not an easy song. No, I, 
agree with you there. I, I put a note on there too. I love the bass on this song. This is really oh. solid bass in this song. And that was all played by one man. I mean, there was, there was a lot of different people on this, but Gary Taylor played the bass on the whole record, you know, uh, and they did really well. Again, it's about four and a half minutes on the album. It's about three and a half minutes on the single version. So not a huge shock there. Waiting for the Day, which is uh, on the B side of the, or the second side of the record is, uh, is the B side of the album. But that didn't, it wasn't released till July 27th of 78. So that's more than five months, six months between singles. Now I know Baker Street's is an enormous hit and he probably had to go out and tour and do a lot of mm-hmm. engagements. And, and that's kind of what you want out of a hit single. But it took him a while before they decided to, uh, to release that. Now, the fact of the matter is they did release, according to the notes on Wikipedia, City to City was released as the first single in 77, ahead of the release on the album on January 19th, 1978. Baker Street came out kind of as the first single once it was released. Right Down the Line was the third single, they say. So that's July. Home and Dry followed it. The arc after that and whatever's written in your heart after that as singles. So six singles off a 10-song record. But when you're selling millions and millions, you've got this huge international hit and then a good follow-up. I mean, that's kind of what happens. Yeah, I was I was very surprised to see six singles off of this. I knew, I mean, I knew the big two. I figured you probably had maybe one or two more, but six out of ten, that's, you know, you're getting into hysteria territory yeah. at that point in time. It's crazy, you know. Now, and again, it did well. Twelve on the Billboard Hot 100, eight on Cashbox. And apparently it had four non-consecutive weeks at number one on the easy listing chart in 78. And it did well in Canada, you know. I have always loved this song. Really have. Like you said, to me, I may have known this one better. I may have heard this one first or just known it better. And then kind of put the two together. Oh, yeah, that's one guy. But it's kind of like... (laughs) When I hear Don't Fear the Reaper by Blue Oyster Cult, immediately after I want to hear Burn For You. I just, you know, it's not the same record, but it's like those are their two big hits. It's like, yeah, I love that song. Is there any more? Yeah, Burn For You, let it run, you know? And this is the same way. It just so happens they're right next to each other on the same record. You don't have to do anything. Just sit there. It'll come right on next. And if history's proven anything, I'm good at just sitting there. <laughs> All right, so that's that's two big international hits. Did very well for him, you know. Again, I mean, not not as big as Baker Street. It's hard to have anything as big as Baker Street, you know. But you're mm-hmm. talking about getting the top twenty in the U.S. and number one on Adult Contemporary and, and top ten around uh, different territories around the world. It sells well, and it kind of propels him to, to kind of keep going in the right direction. The fourth song is City to City, and again, I think this is kind of influenced by his lifestyle time having to travel. Right. Uh, And not even necessarily travel to tour, but travel to take care of his legal business and then travel back home kind of thing. Yeah. It's a traveling song, but it's an upbeat one. I I, I like it. And and it's um, I don't want to say right down the line is is slower because it's not, but it kind of is. So this is a this is a gear change where we're moving on to the next thing. They kind of have a like at the beginning, you're like, what, we, what is it? It sounds like, you know, it sounds like you're on a train. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's the that's the <laughs> right. Exactly. This to me, this has a little bit of the 70s funk on it. Like you can tell that some of the other ones you maybe not be able to tell, but you could. This one was obviously recorded in the 70s to me. But yeah, it's just about him. You know, I, I this is what's happening. I got it. I do my what I have to do. And then. I'm on the train back home. I can't wait. Mm-hmm. That's where I want to be. And you kind of feel like it's just the whole song is just chugging along. Like you really feel like you are on a train. Yeah. And the harmonica, which is delivered by Paul Jones, who was the lead singer of Manfred Mann in the 60s. 
not the Man for Man Earth Band that our buddy Chris Slade was a part of in the 70s, but he was delivering that. I think it has a nice little texture. At the end, it gets a little bit odd to me. It's got some <laughs> odd, like you say, 70s stuff with a, yeah. I'm going home and the background singers are doing their thing, but I, I still like it. And mm-hmm. honestly, this could have been the first song instead of the arc. The, the arc seems like the kind of song you wrap up a side with, not one you start the side with. Yeah, I, I I wonder why they didn't do it like that. It's it's upbeat. It gets it moving. It's the title track. I don't know. I it, I don't know. I don't have any notes here as to why they were they they're tracked in the way that they were. But it, it, that would make sense to me. Well, you know, it probably the arc's probably just something that Jerry was very proud of. Like this is a composition, mm-hmm. and it has all these different pieces and parts, and it's beautiful, and it's what I want to yeah. start with. But the record company's like, well, we're not releasing that. We're, you know, we're starting it with City to City, and I, my guess is mm-hmm. the A and R people like put that first. That's the good first song, but it still worked out for everybody at the end of the day. Absolutely. So, you know. Now the fifth song, which will have been the last song on the first side, Steel in Time. This is mm-hmm. slow. It's right. got the sweet keyboard at the beginning. It's got a little pedal steel mm-hmm. or dobro on there. And it sounds to me like he's just singing about, he's, he's just chilling because he can't do anything because of his record contract situation. Like he knows he needs to get back oh, out there. Okay. But he's just, you know, he's kind of in limbo. And he's like, you know, I, I kind of, it's my own time. I'm stealing time, but the time is mine. And so it's like, I, I'm enjoying this time with my family, but I, I I know I've got to resolve this legal situation. I need to get out there and work and do my thing. But yeah, he's got a line in there about time to cross that line. Time like, is that to cross right? that so, line. To your point, is he waiting? Yeah, come on, come on, come on. Let Just let me out of the box here. And that's what it sounds like to me. And But it's a sweet song. Yeah. And I think this is kind of what he does best. Uh, again, it's a fairly long song. It's over five and a half minutes. And City to City mm-hmm. was about five minutes, you know. But to me, it's, it's pretty strong. And it kind of wraps up a pretty strong first side of an album. A mega hit, a great follow-up hit, a, a good road trip song, and then a good yeah. lament song, along with the arc, which is... I don't know. It's it, it's kind of a traditional bluegrass picking thing. That's that's a little different than the rest, but it's still a nice song. It wraps up a very interesting side one to this uh, to this record. There there are yeah there are no two songs that sound the same on this one, and it, this almost sounds it's almost like a kind of gospel sounding mm-hmm. deal with that organ at the beginning. So yeah, I, I like it. It works well. And I find it interesting that they put they they put Baker Street and right down the line one two. It's kind of that you know what do you do? Do you hit them hard and mm-hmm. and catch them, or do you move it? You know, do you put one of those kind of on the backside to get them somebody to listen to the whole thing all the way through? Well, as far as I'm concerned, city to city is you know they put it fourth. Could have been first. Could have been one two three instead of yeah. two three four. Mm-hmm. So this is definitely a little bit of a game changer as far as the mood and, and what he's talking about. Yeah, but then. 
to open the second side, so is Maddie's rag because mm-hmm. it's got a fade in and a fade out. So it fades in and it builds up a little bit. And I think it's about coming back to his home and having Maddie, you know, welcome it and say, okay, close your eyes. I got a surprise. So I don't know if it's to his daughter, Martha. Maybe Maddie was one of her nicknames. I, that's the, what I was reading into mm-hmm. it. Yeah. This, this one's uh this one's a little bittersweet because it's, you don't know, is it happy? Is it sad? Mm-hmm. He's happy to be back, but he's also sad because he realizes how, how long he's away from her. Yeah. And that's tough for any parent, man. Yeah, absolutely. To me, honestly, on this one, I can hear a little bit of why some people compared his songwriting to Sir Paul McCartney's. It, it's got, okay. it's got, it, you know, you get the fiddles and the backup singers. They give it a little bit of a Beatles sound to it. There's a little bit of a quality there. You know, B.J. Cole's a guy who played uh, guitars and stuff on this. And he plays the dobro uh, or, or pedal steel on this kind of thing. But there's also accordion. There's brass. I mean, there's so much mm-hmm. going on. Yeah. On this song, my only downside to it was because it fades in and it fades out and there's a whole lot going on. It's almost like you didn't know how to start it and you didn't know how to stop it. And it's only three and a half minutes, whereas everything else is four and a half to six and a half minutes long. So it's like it's good enough. He wasn't sure exactly how to start it, finish it or even in between. Right. It's almost like it's kind of an unfinished Deal like some something you were kind of messing with, mm-hmm. and and they said, well, you know, hey, good enough, just throw it on there. But yeah, there is no start, there is no end. But but the the middle part, there's definitely something there, right? And it's one of those songs where the more that you listen to it, the more you hear, oh, okay, I hear something else going on there yeah. in the layers of the sound. There's a lot going on. It, again, it's not just like mm-hmm. four guys, like you know, bass, guitar, drums, singing, and maybe you know, right. a piano or another guitar. There's a lot. Of, there's accordions in there. There's all sorts of different stuff in there. You know, so mm-hmm. and interesting. You know, it, it was the B-side, right, to write down the line. So they didn't release it. One of the four that was not released as a single, but got out there because <laughs> it was a B-side. And I guess it's a it's a song to his daughter, who is in charge of his estate now. The second song, Whatever's Written in Your Heart, I think this mm. was released kind of as the last release off of it. You hear that. You hear that title. And you know, yeah, this is going to be a, you know, a lament, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and where... The other songs had a lot of stuff going on. There's really not a lot going on here. It's just the piano and him at the beginning. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it almost, uh, it's, yeah, piano opening. It, it almost sounds like a, this one sounds like almost a gospel song to me. Yeah. I also put on here, he has a very nice voice because you're right. Well, it's just, there's not a lot of other stuff going on to distract you from mm. his voice. It, it really is just kind of him and the piano for the most part. Whatever's written in your heart, that's all that matters, you'll find a way to say it one day. Mm-hmm. I think this is a very personal song for him. I don't think he's singing this to someone about them. I think he's singing it about himself and that he's the one who struggles with the booze and, and struggles with, you know, it, it's easy to sing a love song to thousands of people. It's hard to go up to someone and hold their hand and look them in the eye and tell you that I love you. 
kind of thing. And I think for him, it's it's like, yeah, he's got this talent, but he can't really express himself necessarily one-on-one, person-to-person, but he can write it and perform it. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. why he hid behind the booze for a long time, maybe. I don't know. I'm speculating a little bit there. I don't know him that well, but there's some sadness in this song, there's for sure. Yeah. And, and I think it, it right down the line was written to his about his wife at the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, is this is this the thing, too, where maybe I don't know what was going on in the relationship is is he saying, you know, trying to say, I've got these things, but I don't know how to express. Them, right. Like you were saying. And, and, and not to and not that it's not a problem with her. It's a problem with him. Yeah. How do I do this? Exactly. And, you know, you know, you can talk. There's a line about how you can talk all night, but not say anything. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, and why is he talking about, you know, he's going to give up the booze and the one night stands? Well, it's because he he wants to be in a real relationship with a woman he loves Mm -hmm. and the foundation of his life is his family. But he's got a foot in both worlds. And I remember being a young man, I would rather instead of go off soberly and talk to a girl and tell her, this is how I really feel about you. I'd rather just get loaded and then see, see if she wants to make out, you know, that's, that's, <laughs> that's a lot easier to do, you know? <laughs> and if you get shot down, it doesn't matter, you know, whereas if yeah, I didn't want to, when you're sober, you know, and you say, Hey, I really feel a lot for you. And she goes, get out of here, loser. Like, yeah. yeah, that would be hard to take. So I, I, I think that's what it is. Six and a half minutes. It's the longest on the record, dude, and it it feels a little long in some places. Whatever's written in your heart, that's all that matters. You'll find a way to say it all someday. Whatever's written in your heart, that's all that matters. Yeah, it, and I was thinking about that too. But the more I listen to it, the more it. If you listen to what he's saying, it's really not that. It's not as long as you think it okay. is. And I've got a note here. Uh, you know, is he giving up? Like I can't do this anymore, or is he resigning himself that if he keeps working at it, it'll work out? Good question. I don't know. Good question. And that's probably something he was struggling with because he didn't know this was going to sell 6 million copies as a, as an mm-hmm. LP and then millions more in singles. And I think, you know, it said something like it made him 80,000 pounds a year, Baker Street. Like it was a nice annuity every year. He got that much just from that song alone. So everything yeah. else that he did, he's like, I can just live off of that. He didn't have that yet. You know, he, he's still, yeah. every, I mean, he basically said, look, everything I did was a failure, right? <laughs> I mean, the Humble Bums were a failure. My first solo album was a failure. The Steelers Wheel was a failure. You know, it's like, I don't judge my life on record sales. You know, I judge it on the quality of my stuff. But then once you've got a big hit, your perspective might change a little bit. Yeah, and I think this was definitely the one that that brought him into it. But like you were saying, when you were recording it, I mean... The track record wasn't stellar so far. You don't know how this was going to go. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Now, the eighth song or the third song on the second side, Home and Dry, I like this one. This is a lot more upbeat. We're, we're, we're changing We're changing gears again. With that, the, whatever's in your heart, that's heavy duty. Mm-hmm. Okay, we need something light. Let's go back to the traveling song. This time, though, we've got an upgrade. We're not on the train now. Now we're on the transatlantic flight. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it's positive. It's a positive song. It's not a lament like these others. And he's talking to his woman like he's, you know, he's going to be with her. It's mm -hmm. all about her. He's having to be home and dry instead of on the road or commuting to London or something like that. And this actually hit the, the Billboard charts as well. 28 on Billboard, 26 on Easy Listening. So that's three straight hits that he had on the American charts. That's not an easy thing to accomplish, you know. Not everybody does that, especially someone of this genre. I mean, if you were a, a disco artist, maybe then, yeah, it's easy to get three hits, you know, in a year. But to get three for Jerry Rafferty out of Scotland, that's that's rare. Yeah. But now, wait a minute. What is he talking about? It's not raining on the plane. What do you mean you're going to be home and dry? That's a very English turn of phrase. Okay. Like, like you're done and dusted. Uh, I'm home and dry because it's always raining in England. But I got news for you. I've lived in Amsterdam for four months and it has rained every goddamn day. Okay. <laughs> it's rained so much more here than it did in London. And it's harder rain too. Like in London, you don't necessarily yeah. need an umbrella. You need a jacket, but you don't necessarily even yeah. need a hat. Here, you need all that stuff. It rains and it rains and it rains. Okay. So so the, so the home and drive means you're the bit safe and sound. Not I'm home. Exactly. I'm not going to be drinking anymore. Like I'm not drying out from that. There's, I doubt okay. that somehow. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, j just, to, just to say kind of the same thing as city to city. You know, I'm done doing what I have to do. I'm coming back home. I can't wait to, you know, be with the family, be mm -hmm. with everybody, and just kind of get back to more of a normal life for a minute. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? did well in Canada, 23 overall, number seven, adult contemporary. But for whatever reason, they didn't release it as a single in the UK. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, which is too bad. Maddie's Rag was the B-side, but I thought it was, uh, I think this is a, a great song. The silver bird takes me across the sky, just one more So, I mean, the first four releases, City to City, Baker Street, right down the line, Home and Dry, these are great songs. These are killer, mm -hmm. you know, songs good for the time. A couple of them are classics for all time. The one that's a little different to me is Island, the ninth mm -hmm. song. Mm -hmm. Did he take a vacation? Mm -hmm. Wake up, my love. The sun is shining in the sky above. I'm like, huh? Is this Jerry Rafferty? You know, and he's taking a swing at Jimmy Buffett on this. Kind one. of, you know, yeah. uh, you know, it, it's a little bit of a departure, not a huge departure in style, but as far as what he's singing about, mm -hmm. it, it kind of is. I mean, did he write it while he was on vacation or reminiscing about a vacation? That's what it sounds like. It, and it sounds like to me, I mean, and maybe it's one of those things too, like you tour for a extended period of time and yeah, I just want to go on vacation. The other thing too is what, what I, we don't really realize in the United States is that people from England mm -hmm. and people from Scotland, all like you said, it rains all the time right. to go to a place where the sun is shining and it's warm and that's everything you can hope for. Yeah. And my thing with this, just listening to this song, like it's it's just kind of a nice little, little escape song. But I know people that tell me like, oh, I don't like the beach. If you don't like the beach, I don't want to know. Yeah, you what's wrong? Because you, there's man. nothing better than just being on vacation, 
got your you know feet in the sand the drinks are flowing and it's just sunny i mean you know living is easy oh geez i I understand maybe you don't want to live at the beach i can get that Mm -hmm. like that's not what Mm -hmm. you want all the time you want different terrain you want different Mm -hmm. climate okay i get it but you never want to go there and i find you know people from england because of their weather situation Mm -hmm. those folks travel the world man first of all they they once conquered it and owned it ran the whole thing but you know i'll be talking to a cab driver he's like oh yeah every year i go for two weeks to the azores i'm like well i don't know if i can afford to go to two weeks from the azores i do a little bit better than a cab driver you know but i mean that's just their culture they will go travel all over the world uh, to the most far-flung places sometimes um and uh, and yeah that's just kind of part of it and ravenscroft is back on this one he did a little sax number on this so it's this in baker street so but yeah, he's talking about this is the last day and it's like you know we gotta soak this up while it lasts i'm like yeah this is weird for jerry rafferty <laughs> Right, but but for in some weird way it fits. I, I I couldn't tell you why. It's totally different. It completely fits. I will tell you back to the vacation thing. I've sat at a table full of Brits, mm-hmm. and it's like the business card scene from American Psycho. They're all they're, they're trying to one up each other mm-hmm. with vacations. Where are you going to go? Well, I'm going. But well, I'm going to South Africa for. Okay, well, I'm going to the mall day. <laughs> Exactly. Hey, we get it. Yeah. yeah. Vacation is important. We get it. But again, if you live in a place where it rains and is overcast, yes, that's all you want to do is get away. Absolutely. And it, like I said, I don't know. I don't know why it works, but it totally does. It does. It, it's not way off. It, it's not a departure of style so much. It's just a departure of kind of what he's well, singing about. Yeah. Right. Right. The, the kind of the, the, the story message. is a little yeah. different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, last song on the album, Waiting for the Day. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was a B-side, I guess. This is, again, this is upbeat. It's got a little 70s disco tinge to I it. I have that note, yeah. too, yeah. Especially with the guitar. Yeah. And the, the guitar on here is from Andy Fairweather Lowe, you know, who had played with Clapton and, um, you know, a, a lot of different guys over the years. and A talented guy. But it's kind of got that 70s chug disco guitar. And then, yeah. you know, he, mm-hmm. he plays it pretty well. And the beat is very disco. But here's the thing. I, I like it. And... To be honest with you, it could easily be flipped with the arc. Now, how often do you say okay. you could flip the first song the with the last, last song? Yeah, not yeah, not at all. Usually, the last song is the, the last song for a reason. Yeah, yeah. Correct. Either because it's not good not and good. barely made the record, or because it's a nice little soft way to kind of sing you out. Which mm-hmm. to me, the arc kind of would have been. You know, it's not like mm-hmm. it's the worst song or it's a bad song, but it's like here's one that's kind of mellow to kind of see you on your way, and we'll see. Yeah. You know, that would be a good way to wrap it up. To me, though, Waiting for the Day, as far as the 10th song goes, is pretty good. It, it could have easily been the first song because it's upbeat and it has that kind of disco thing, which at the time may have helped it sell even more. You put that on first mm-hmm. versus the arc. Like you buy it because of Baker Street and you hear the right. arc and you're like, oh, what did I get in here? here? <laughs> but it's 1978 and you buy it and then that comes on. You're like, okay, you know, you're talking my language here, right? Yeah. 
but I, I like it. You're right. The, the tune is 70s, got 70s funk all over it. The guitar work is really nice. The, my criticism for this one is the lyrics. They're just kind of throwaway, whereas a lot of these other ones have very personal, very, mm-hmm. like, you could tell this was just kind of like, we, we need some words to go on to, along with this music. Okay, I'll, I'll throw something together for you. And maybe that's why it's last, because it, could it, be. it told the, it was the least strong or least compelling story. Um, and mm-hmm. even though I, I think, and you know, look, he wasn't a disco guy. So having that disco track on there, he's kind of like, okay, that's not really me. <laughs> I, I want that lower. But that's just yeah. my take on it. You could put this first and put the arc last, and I think the flow of the album would be better. Yeah, I, I will agree with you that while I like the song The Arc, it is a very strange way to start the record. Like, this is how you want, this is the statement you want to make off the bat, right. which makes me believe that, that that he felt very passionately about that track. And that's why he said, I don't care, mm-hmm. number this one. This puts it number one. And maybe it was yeah. one that had been sitting around the longest, and he's like, okay, I've been fighting this legal battle for two or three years just so I can get this song, you know, out, mm-hmm. you know, kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, maybe. So, who knows? Yeah. I don't know. But that was the album put together. However, there was the B-side to, I think it was Baker Street. No, yeah, Big Change in the Weather. Now, I had never heard this song before doing research for this show. So I'm like, okay. Okay. B-side, Big Change in the Weather. Let's listen to it. It's about a five and a half minute song. It sounds nothing like anything else on this album. Absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it was produced differently uh, or in a different space or whatever. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. It, it sounds nothing like it. It's very tinny. And you know what I mean when I say tinny, but it means it's, it's high in treble, low on bass. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the album sounds great. Like it's mixed very well. Even those songs are different kinds of songs. They all sound the same to me. And it's very fast. So it doesn't fit in at all. After doing research and found that the U.S. the U.S. record was playing at a faster rate, I thought, okay, well, maybe this is too. And the only real version of this is the U.S. version. And that's why it sounds faster and sped up. The drums don't sound like anything else on the album. So I don't know. It's very weird. But here's the thing. His voice sounds the same to me. And it's not like they would speed up the song and have him do his voice over it. They would have sped up the whole thing. Right. So so if that's the case, then it's, it's a real anomaly to me. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I don't know whether this was, yeah, I was just trying to look and see if there's any kind of note on this. I, yeah, it could have been something that was, it, it didn't get recorded originally with the rest of the sessions, but he still liked it for whatever reason. Yeah. So they did it somewhere else. I don't know, but yeah, it, it does. It does have a different feel to it. Totally different. And you wonder why they would even include that. I mean, I know B sides are, that's what they are. They're something, you know, something that's not yeah. correct. Yeah. But that is interesting. Yeah. I mean, maybe it was like, okay, but we'll just pick one of the songs of the album. Like, no, no, no. We know Baker Street's going to be a big hit. Let's, you know, back it with something horrible, you know, that, that nobody's going to want, you know, <laughs> isn't even good enough to go on the record, you know. So maybe they made that song. They mixed everything else. And like, okay, that that's that's not going to make it on the record. So we're not even going to mix that. That's not going to sound the same. And they're like, okay, well, now we need a B-side. Okay, here it is. You know, the one that, that doesn't sound right. I mean, the drums are way off. 
I don't know. And, and then in reading, because I had to find it on YouTube, they can't, they don't even have it on Spotify. I, don't, I found it on YouTube. Huh. Okay. And there's a bunch of comments in there, like, you know, hey, this is from City City. He goes, what, not my City City? Like, no, it was a B side or whatever. It's like, and some people are like, thanks, this just doesn't fit. And I had to like that one. I'm like, you're right. It, it doesn't fit. And, and I guess, it, you know, there's some stuff in there, like, I hope you know who your friends are and some of that kind of stuff. And like, oh, I Ooh. think he's singing to Billy Connolly on this. I'm like, I don't know. Billy. Seems like they resolve things, and, and he seems a little bit be more easygoing. I, I I got a feeling it's more like he was singing it to Joe Egan, like you got stuck with those Americans who were screwing us over, and like hope you know who your mm-hmm. friends are, or maybe he's even singing it to himself, like you know I'll know better next time. I won't get involved with those people I don't trust, kind of thing. I doubt it was about Billy, but but who knows? We we don't know. And and Jerry's been gone now for for uh, over a decade, I guess it is. Yeah. He, uh, apparently, look, he made a couple records. After this one, they didn't come anywhere close to the success of Baker Street. I mean, you know, like not not even anywhere close. But he continued on. And when you have those that one big seller, right, you're going to get more chances. I mean, it's not just mm-hmm. that you have a, an obligation to fulfill. You've got you've got an opportunity to go out there. And right. Do well. You've got you've got the yes, you've got the track record where they will keep letting you make records. Yeah. You know, so Night Owl comes out the next year Mm -hmm. and the single Night Owl, I think does okay, but doesn't, you know, run up the charts or anything. I think it goes gold in the UK, but that's, that's like a hundred thousand. Whereas, you know, Baker Street sold 600,000 on its own, not to mention the the whole record, you know? So um, I think the song Night Owl did fine. Days Gone Down, which I, I, I seem to remember it was used in a pretty big movie or TV show in the last five or six years or something like that, probably because it's a lot less expensive than trying to get <laughs> Baker Street or Steeler's Wheel, you know. So Night Owl does, you know, okay. Snakes and Ladders comes out in 1980. I don't think that really goes anywhere at all, to be honest with you. And then uh, in 1982, they're sleepwalking. And then I think he's, you know, at this point, he's been working hard touring interviews recording promoting and he's like i I gotta change i gotta change the way i do this well and well the other thing too is you were talking about you know if you're making it a guaranteed 80k a year off of one song all of a sudden eh, maybe i'm not really so interested in beating my head against the wall anymore i'll just kind of sit here and when i want to work i work and when i won't i'll do whatever yep and and that was kind of the case i think you know and look between 1988 and 2009, at the time of his death, he put out six records, and including one that I picked up. It was kind of his last one called Rest in Blue. It came out, I was going to say last year, but it was 2021, so technically it was two years ago. His daughter, Martha, kind of cobbled together the, the demos and stuff that was intended to be his next album that would come out in 2011 or maybe 2012. And and they released Rest in Blue. And so I picked it up because I support Jerry and want to know more about his uh career than just you know the one record you know and right look there's some nice stuff on there there's no doubt about it but none of it recaptures the the magic that was this time and place and that's sometimes what an album is it's it, it may be classic and the songs you may continue to love your whole life but i don't know if if i play a few of these songs to like my daughter's class as a bunch of eight and nine year olds are they gonna say oh yeah that's awesome and they'll love it the rest of their lives Probably not, but because we heard it on the radio growing up when we were so impressionable, they've put it in movies and stuff that we love, and then we listened to it you know, when we were older. I just feel like it, it, it's a generational thing. It's important to us and our age group. 
But beyond that, maybe not so much. Yeah, it, it's it, you're right. It imprinted, and and then when it came back around again, you say, "Oh, you know, I remember this." And then you know, you go back and you listen to the album again, or you listen to the tracks that you like. But yeah, I think now it's just not only do they not have a connection, but it, we've talked about this before. Music is just so much more disposable now. Like it's just you know, you you don't ever get to know anything. It's just you know, onto the next thing, onto the next thing. Yeah. The, the one thing I, I did want to say about the record is that. Jerry's voice, he didn't have a big range, mm. at least not that was on display, but he makes up for it by having different sounding songs, different styles of songs. So nothing sounds repetitive on this record at all. I like that. I, I, I think you're on to something there. You're right. He didn't have this huge eight octave range or anything like that. Mm. He kind of had this one little pocket that he was in, but it was nice. It was melodic. It was mm. pretty. It was soulful. Yeah. And if you change the style up, then you don't have, like I said, you don't have repetitive thing like, oh, this just sounds like the last one. And and him putting the the different instruments in and layering it, it just, it, I don't think any two songs sound the same on this record at all. And yet it together makes a lot of sense together to me. Mm-hmm. You know, ex- except right. for the arc, I'm just telling you, great song. <laughs> it's just weird. Make it the 10th song instead of the first. Again, John Byrne did the cover painting. Look, I... I love it, and I I like being able to get to know an artist like Jerry Rafferty, who's not ACDC, who's not, you know, hard rock, or who who made, you know, a dozen albums of which they all had some kind of hit on it. It, It's cool to be able to, to, to dig in and find an artist like this. But the fact of the matter is Jerry was not a superstar personality. He It's not what he wanted to be. In that documentary, there's a video of him, like, getting an award at, like, the British Musician and Songwriting Award or whatever kind of thing. He goes up. He's got his glasses on, his untrimmed beard on, his jacket, no tie. How do you feel? I feel really great. You know, it's like (laughs) if he wasn't singing or playing, he really didn't have a whole lot to say. It seemed now uh, I think he was shy. Yeah. And, And but, you know, the fact of the matter is he had a drinking problem. And his father succumbed to drinking. And I think in the late 80s, maybe 88 or something like that, one of his older brothers died. I don't mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think it was alcohol related, but I think it hit him hard and it didn't help his drinking. And not too long after that, he got divorced from his wife, who he had been with for so long. And then he would generally end up in the papers because he would destroy a hotel room or he would, you know, mm-hmm. get blotto somewhere, you know, get in trouble in the United States or something like that. And so I hate that that is a big part of his legacy. But that's yeah. that's kind of the the tale of Jerry Rafferty is that he had one enormous hit record. He had some other successes. He lives on because of about three songs, mm-hmm. and he there was something about himself that he was not thrilled about, and I think that's what the alcohol was about. Yeah, and and that's the that's always kind of the the back and forth is that's if you hate to hear that about a person but that's what makes somebody great to write songs because they've got this, this they, they've got this or yeah that that they can convey mm-hmm. and when you may not have the same problems but you can relate to what he's saying you can relate to the things that he's gone through the the concepts of it and it's interesting that uh this album was not bigger in the United States because I, there's a lot of great tracks on here that that never get heard and why this wasn't pushed harder maybe it was because of him you know he he wasn't he wasn't the guy that was going to come here and do a months long tour in the United States and get on TV yeah. and hype it and everything so they just said okay we'll play what we're going to play and then that's just it he didn't love to tour he certainly didn't love to do mm. interviews 
Right. But look, peak, and that that kills you yeah. in the United States. You have to be a, you have to be a personality to make it. Kills here. you everywhere, really. I mean, mm-hmm. but that said, how did the album do? Number three in Australia, nine in Austria, five in the Netherlands, three in Germany, six in New Zealand, six in the UK. Number one. U.S. Billboard 200, number one that summer, you know, so, and it went platinum, didn't go multi-platinum, but getting platinum in the United States after being basically a nobody in the era of punk and disco, not to mention big rock like Led Zeppelin, ACDC, that kind of stuff, that's pretty damn good. I mean, number 38 overall on the 1978 chart for the year. Yeah. Very decent showing. Like I said, I don't know why this wasn't bigger in the United States because I think the material is there. It just kind of depends on where you were. You know, I mean, are you a Kiss fan? If you're Kiss, you probably don't like this. You know, if you're a Prague, yes, Genesis fan, you probably don't like this. You know, if if you like Al Stewart, Year of the Cat, this is probably, you know, (laughs) your kind of thing. You like Neil Diamond, this is probably your kind of thing, you know. So Christopher Cross. My guess is you do like this, you know, so I'm just glad it came out in the late 70s because it came out three or four years later, or the dawn of MTV, it never would have had a chance. Right. And I'm glad that these two songs were on there to kind of spur us on to listen to the Rexes, listen to the rest of the record and, and get to know Jerry a little bit better. Other than that, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have heard of him at all. That's right. That's right. So God rest you, Jerry. And thanks so much for what you did do because we're, we're fans and Dave Grohl's mm-hmm. a fan. You know, you, you have legions of fans. It's just, you, you didn't really want to, you didn't really want to <laughs> get out and play for him. You just uh, you know, <laughs> want to be recognized for your talent. You just didn't want to have to pay the dues right. on the road there. Yeah. <laughs> American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Well, that wraps show number 113 on Jerry Rafferty and his 1978 record, City to City, which featured the big hits, Baker Street and Right Down the Line. And we hope you enjoyed our little trip down memory lane there. And for those of you who aren't as familiar with Jerry Rafferty as you should be, Hopefully this gives you a little impetus to go out there and listen to his stuff. You know, it's not just that one record. He did make a bunch of others. Of course, he was also in Steeler's Wheel. But go out and check out Jerry, a Scottish legend of sorts who had some big hits there in the late 70s. He's no longer with us, but definitely left a mark on us. And it's nice to take a break from the hard rock and the heavy metal that we usually listen to and dive into maybe somebody who isn't necessarily a household name, but those songs are are household songs. Definitely everybody knows Baker Street. Most people know right down the line. 
stuck in the middle with you. Thanks to Quentin Tarantino is a, a in the public zeitgeist. And so hopefully our little show on Jerry will help you become more familiar with his work and appreciate him more. And so we want to know, as usual, folks, do we get something right? Do we get something wrong? Do we miss the point? Do we leave out your favorite part? You have got to let us know. You email us at UglyAmericanWerewolf at gmail.com. You can also tweet or DM us at Ugly underscore Werewolf or at ActionJack72. You can let us know the albums, the bands, the concerts, the, the rock and roll that you want to hear us talk about. And of course, we want you to download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, be it Apple, Spotify. Good Pods is very good to us. It sounds like Google Play might be going away, but wherever you get your podcast, please download, subscribe, and if you're thinking about it, give us a positive review. It just takes a second, and it really makes a big difference to us. It helps us find more rock and rollers like you and helps us grow our show. Thanks, as always, to Pantheon Pards, of which we are a proud member. And, of course, thanks to our incredible sponsor, RareVinyl.com. So if you want to go out and find that rare Jerry Rafferty 12-inch single, or maybe you want to get the City to City album and LP, a first print, go to RareVinyl.com, use code PODCAST. You'll save 10% off not only that order, but every order you make going forward. Now, next week, we're going to do a band that's a little bit more well-known to you, I have a feeling. An album celebrating its 40th anniversary here very soon, and that's U2's War, which had the huge hits Sunday, Bloody Sunday, and New Year's Day. It's a really pivotal album for the band. It really started them on the path to mega stardom. It's a big one for us, and we hope that you enjoy listening to that. You'll have to download and subscribe to make sure you don't miss that. So until next time, to all of you rock and rollers all around the world, be cool and stay safe. achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.